Well, good morning, community of faith. How are you? If you're worshiping at home, glad that you're with us. It's going to be a good day today. God's got something for us, something I'm excited to share with you. I also want to remind you that on October 15th, in just a couple of weeks, we're starting our marriage relationship series. So if you're in a relationship, this is for you. We're sending out thousands of little brochures to all of your friends and neighbors, but I want you to invite your friends. Let's fill up this place. All of us could use a little bit of help in our most important relationships, and God has got some secrets for us, some things that Laura and and myself, we've learned over 40 years that have made a huge, huge impact, and they're probably not what you think they are. There's some things that God has taught us, even in recent years, that have really changed everything. So today we're going to look and continue in this Christianity 101 idea, but I'm going to pull a little bit of some of the things that we might be talking about in the marriage series in today, uh, just in our personal lives, whether you're married, single, whatever, it applies to all of us. I think it's amazing that Jesus knows us. He understands us right where we are. And so I want us to look at John 14, 18, as we're studying just this one verse. And then I'm going to go back and grab uh, from earlier in John a story that kind of just exemplifies what this verse is talking about. So let me just read it to you. John 14, 18, Jesus says very simply, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Now, he goes on to say, I'm talking about the Holy Spirit. If you're a believer, I'm going to send my spirit. It's me, my spirit to live inside of you, to give you the strength for life change to give you the ability to do more than what you could possibly do on your own. You know, it's interesting to me because the latest neuroscience and the latest psychology basically talks about this very thing, about orphans inside of us. It says that When we have had trauma in our life growing up, what happens is it happens in the right side of our brain. And as uh, we're developing, because in those early days in development, it's almost all right-sided. The left side of your brain is the everyday brain, the adult brain, the, you know, going on with life kind of brain. But the right side side of the brain is the creative childlike part of us. But the right side of our brain is locked out of time. It doesn't have any sense of time at all. And when we experience traumas growing up, whether they're little traumas that add up or there's some big trauma in our life, it locks away over there. And it almost becomes, it's where these neurons are kind of locked off, but it's kind of an orphaned part of our brain. In fact, it's interesting because when I'm talking to a couple that's struggling, my most important question isn't, what are your stressors? And that's important. I mean, things like kids and money and 
uh, sexual compatibility, things like that. But that's not the question. That's the main question in my mind. You know what the main question in my mind is? Who am I talking to right now? Because we have this tendency to go back. There's these, these things that we learned how to do as kids. Psychologists call them the adaptive child, the survivor. You learned how to do some things that enable you, enabled you to survive, but they're not working for you anymore as an adult. But it's so easy to just keep getting caught back up into that. And so we want to look at a little of this this morning. I want to look at a story that we can see just a little bit of what Jesus did and how he acted when he was reaching out to us, to that orphaned part of us. And I'll go all the way back to John chapter four. It's a really familiar story. The woman at the well. Let me just read a little bit to you. Verse three. So Jesus left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. It's such an interesting phrase in the original Greek of the New Testament. He had to go. You see, Israel was kind of divided into three parts. There was a part in the top where the Jews lived. There was a part in the middle called Samaria where the Samaritans lived, and they were half Jews. And they had kind of a twisted form of Judaism, and so the Jews despised them. And in the bottom part of the country, again, the Jews were there. But almost every Jewish teacher or religious person even would always go around Samaria because they despised the Samaritans. They felt like they were uh, heretics. They were far from God. But this says Jesus had to go. Now you would think maybe he had to go because he was going from north to south. But that's not, the, that's not what was happening. What was happening, this, when it says had to go, it's a moral imperative. There was some reason why he knew that he had to go through Samaria. And it was because he had an appointment to keep, to meet a woman by the well. Now you might think that you're the last person God would ever want to make an appointment with. And you may feel so far from God this morning that you think he probably doesn't even know you exist. But I've got news for you. It's not an accident that you're here today. It's possible that many of us don't know who you are, what you're like, or how you've lived your life, but God does. And he has something to say to you and to me today. It goes on, it says, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. Interesting word again in the Greek. Weary, he was tired, kopiao to grow weary, tired, exhausted. This God man was tired. We always think of Jesus as God and you know, don't think of him as being worn out and tired. But he had come on a long journey. You're saying, yo, I know he came all the way from Judea. That's, that's miles and miles. No, he came all the way from heaven. He came from heaven. 
He came from heaven and he humbled himself and he took on this flesh and blood life that we know how hard it is. And he came all the way to meet this woman beside this well. And he's come all the way for us today. Now, Jacob's well is about a half mile out of town. Said it was the sixth hour or 12 noon. Verse seven, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Because Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Why'd she come at noon? What was she doing there at the well? Because usually they would come early before the sun got hot. It was a small price to pay to avoid the, the wagging tongues, the gossip of all the other women in the small town in which she lived. There she is, here she comes. Have you heard she's got a new man? She'll sleep with anyone. So she came to the well at noon and there was Jesus seated on the ground, legs outstretched, back resting against the well. His eyes are closed, he looks tired. What's he doing here? His eyes open, she looks away. Sensing her discomfort, Jesus asked her for water. But you know, she's too streetwise to think that a man like that was gonna talk to her and just ask for water. And she was right. Jesus had an ulterior motive, but it wasn't her body he was seeking. It was her heart. He cared for her. They talked. Who could remember the last time a, a man had spoken to her with respect? Would you give me a drink, he said. It's amazing, this, this one who spoke forth Niagara, the one who spoke forth the Amazon, the one who spoke forth the Nile, and he is asking her for a drink. Verse 10, Jesus said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Again, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. It's like this amazing love of God, the river of life rushing down to water one little flower. Verse 15, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you've said is quite true. Now it's interesting to me because you have to realize that sometimes the gospel writers, they're, they're just summarizing what happened. 
Jesus had a long conversation with this woman. This was a little summary of it. And sometimes if we read it, you're right, you've had a bunch of husbands, you know, it's like, no, that's not what he's saying. That, that's not how it went. In fact, it's interesting. Listen to what John 21, 28 says about how they wrote the gospels. It says this, of course, there are many other things which Jesus did. And I suppose that if each one were written down in detail, there would not be enough room in the whole world for all the books that could have been written. You see, they gave a little synopsis. So the conversation went kind of like this, go call your husband and come back. And her heart must have sunk. Here, here was the closest thing to gentleness from a man that she maybe had ever experienced. And now he's asking her about that. Anything but that. I have no husband. And Jesus looks her in the eye and he said, I know, little girl. I see you. I know that you were abused. I know that you were neglected. I know that your little body was used before you ever should have been. And it affected every relationship that you had. Your first husband, he was abusive, but you didn't have the boundaries to really see that. Your second husband, you're the one that stepped out on him. You're so confused. Then you had the third and the fourth and the fifth. I mean, your life has been anything but Disney. It's been anything but fairy tale. All of the dreams that you had have been crushed. And the guy you live with now, he won't even give you his name. He gives you a place to sleep. He uses you. I know, little one, abused, lost, no boundaries. You've had five husbands. And the one you're with now doesn't even want to call you wife. No criticism, no anger, no what a mess you've made of your life lectures. See, he knew her and he still loved her. In fact, he had come just for her. He had stepped down out of heaven for her. He was tired and worn out and his human body was frail because he wasn't the omnipotent God of the universe in this moment. He was simply the son of man. Oh yeah, he was God, but he was very much flesh. And the woman is amazed. One of the things that always helps me in my coaching is I, I like to read from other people's uh, therapy sessions and coaching sessions, and, and I gain a lot from that. I was reading a book the other day, and I, let me just pull out this little session for you. Paul, 48, crosses his ankle on top of his knees and drums his fingers absently on his horizontal leg. His wife, Cheryl, 55, has had it with him. He's too closed off, too unintimate. She needs more. And yet, Paul assures me he came from a normal, happy childhood. 
No one screamed at him or hit him or bullied him, he tells me. I've heard this before. And at this early point in the session, it's difficult to ascertain whether Paul grew up in an unloving home or just a quiet one. I ask, so Paul, who did you turn to for comfort or reassurance when you were hurt or scared? Well, he muses, I don't recall turning to anyone. I relied on myself. From what age? Pardon? How young were you when you first learned to take care of yourself? Ah, oh, I don't know, he says, as long as I can remember. Right, I tell him. You shut the door on feelings so long ago, you don't remember. But you didn't come out that way. Further back than your memory stretches, you did reach out to your parents once or twice for solace, and their response led, to, led you to conclude that depending on them emotionally was a bad idea. Paul shifts in his chair, listening. With no one there to help modulate your feelings, you did a very smart thing as that little boy. You shut your feelings down. You closed a door on them. Paul is a type one love avoidant, someone who in today's psychological parlance would be classed as having an avoidant dismissive attachment style. Paul lives behind walls because he grew up in a family where everyone lived behind walls. So what's the problem? Being emotionally shut down is normal to Paul. And if he lived alone, he'd be fine, but he doesn't live alone. He has a wife and a bunch of kids who need him. The problem for Paul is that we humans cannot be surgical with our feelings. If you open up to one feeling, they all come. And Cheryl is knocking hard on Paul's door, but opening up his heart to her means reopening the door he firmly closed as a child. He's routinely subject to emotions but he doesn't have the tools to identify them. You left your feelings, I tell him in a later session. They never left you. They've been percolating the whole time. You just need help connecting to them and naming them. I have to teach Paul how to have emotions. He needs them to share with his wife. For some time, she's been feeling bored with their marriage, she confesses later in the session. Paul needs to share his emotional life with Cheryl, and he needs to become interested in Cheryl's emotional life as well. All this requires help because when little Paul fell from his bicycle, the adults looked away or stared at him without expression. I tell Paul about passive abuse, emotional neglect. This issue is not something that is present like sexual energy or rage. It's not something that shouldn't be. Rather, it's things that aren't guidance, comfort, sharing. You know, more children are removed from homes because of neglect than because of violating abuse. If you want to see clearly what happens to infants and young children when connection is withheld, watch any of Dr. Ed Tronick's still faith experiments on YouTube. And here's what you see, I tell Paul, recommending a Tronic video to him. The tape vignette starts off great. You see mother with a young child on her lap maybe 18 months old, the boy holds a toy brontosaurus and the dinosaur feeds the mother and the mother eats the imaginary food offered by the toy. The, the mother and the child murmur together. Then suddenly the mother turns her head away and freezes. Nothing hostile, no cues to the child, just a completely blank, still face. Two minutes. That's how long the whole thing lasts. It's an excruciating two minutes though. At first, the young boy runs through an increasingly desperate repertoire of eliciting behaviors. He 
coos and murmurs holding the dinosaur up to the mother, trying to get the mother to eat again, to engage. When nothing works, the child moves into protest behavior. He yells, screeches, arches his back. Finally, the little boy just decompensates. He starts rocking. He's crying. Drool drips from his mouth as he rams the back of his head into his mother's body over and over again. Two minutes, I tell Paul. And just how many minutes do you think you endured? And Paul had walled off. And there became this orphaned part of him, this little adaptive child had to make it on his own and he survived but it's not working anymore in his marriage this woman had done the same thing because of the abuse in her life she had lost her boundaries with men and she didn't know how to relate in any way but sexually she became the talk of the town she went through five marriages she's living with a man not her husband. She says in verse 19, Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Verse 25 says this. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. And when he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. If anyone ever tells you, and I've heard it so many times, you know, Jesus never claimed to be the Messiah. Just bring him to that verse. I, the one who am speaking to you, I am he. Now she knows clearly, unmistakably, Jesus has identified himself, what he can be and what he can do. I think it's interesting that the first time that he plainly revealed himself, it wasn't to the king it wasn't to the governor, Pontius Pilate. It wasn't to the great Caesar, Augustus. No, it was to this outcast woman at the well. Where's God? He's right here. He's closer than you think, my little lost daughter. I've come a long way to find you of all the people to be chosen personally to receive the secret of the ages. Verse 27, just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman, but no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Again, we get a good indication that this was a long conversation. He saw me for the first time. Someone saw me my whole life. He saw me. He saw who I really am and he still loves me. Could this be the Messiah? Boy, that was interesting to them because they knew this woman. They'd never really seen her. They just had made up their thoughts about her, her reputation. But when she said that, it struck a chord in their heart. This man saw her 
knew her, loved her. Verse 30, they came out of the town and made their way toward him. Jesus looks at his disciples as he sees all of these town people coming out. I mean, they're just coming out by the droves. They're coming out to see this man by the well. And he looks at his disciples and he says, don't you have a saying? It's still four months until harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They're ripe for harvest. Even now the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Don't miss the drama of the moment. Her eyes open wide. You are God. You are the Messiah. She takes one last look at this grinning Nazarene and runs into town. She's got to tell everybody. And you know what? She leaves. Did you notice she left her water pot? Represents the shame of her broken marriages. This new awareness broke over her. God is here. God has come and God cares for me. That's why she forgot her water jar. That's why she ran to the city. That's why she grabbed the very first person she saw. He said, you've got to meet this one. I just talked to a man who told me everything I ever did and why I did it. He gets me. He understands me. You've got to come and meet this man. The disciples offered Jesus some food and says he refused it. He was too excited. He had just done what he always does if given the chance. He had wrought life change. A lady named Joy teaches under-resourced children in an inner city church. Her class is a, a lively group of nine-year-olds and man, are they rambunctious. I mean, they love life. They aren't afraid of God, but there's one exception. Her name is Barbara, timid little girl. Obviously she's been abused. Her abusive home life had left her afraid, insecure. For all the weeks that Joy had taught the class, Barbara had sat there stone-faced, quiet, while the other kids asked questions or played and giggled. Laura, I mean, Barbara had just sat there quietly. She never spoke, never. Always present, always listening, always speechless, until the day that Joy gave her little talk on heaven. Joy talked about seeing God. She talked about tearless eyes and deathless lives and Barbara was fascinated. She wouldn't release Joy from her stare. She listened with hunger and then suddenly she raised her hand. Miss Joy, Miss Joy. Joy was stunned. Barbara had never spoken, never asked a question. Yes, Barbara. Is heaven for girls like me? I can just imagine Jesus' face as this tiny prayer reaches his throne. Again, his eyes must have danced. 
a prayer to take a life that no one else could use and use it as no one else could to make a difference in the world. So don't you love that God is like that? Don't you love that he knows us? And he always does what he does. He takes the everyday and he makes it amazing. Like he takes that shepherd's staff that we've talked about and he divides the sea. He, he, he takes the water and he makes a sparkling wine. He takes that little pebble and kills a giant with it. And he takes three spikes and a wooden beam and makes them the hope of humanity. And he takes a rejected woman and he makes her a light to her whole city. Verse 39, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony when she said, he told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. He stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. And they said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we've heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. What did she do? She just said, come see. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to say, come and see. Come and meet this one. He knows you. He knows why you do the things you do. He knows why you have the arguments that you have. He knows how you've been orphaned in whatever way that you've been orphaned coming through this traumatic struggle of a world that's broken. And he just loves you. Come see. You don't have to have all the answers. Maybe like this woman, you're struggling deeply yourself. Come see. A large study was done about why people don't attend church. They thought that they would say, well, you know, I'm not sure I believe in God or it just seems irrelevant to me. They thought that they would say, well, it's just boring. I remember it as a kid. It doesn't make any difference. They thought they would say, well, you know, those people there are hypocrites. You know what the overwhelming response was? Why don't you go to church? You know what they said? No one ever asked me. No one ever asked me. No one ever invited me. Overwhelmingly, double, triple, any other answer. No one ever asked me. October 15th, you're going to have a chance to ask. I don't care what kind of perfect picture your neighbors, your coworkers, your friends, your relatives are putting on, they're struggling. You can't live in this world and not be struggling. 
and they're going to have a chance to meet this one who knows them, who understands them. We'll laugh together, maybe cry together. Would you invite them? We sent out those brochures, but brochures don't bring people. Personal invitations do. Who can you invite on October 15th? Just tell them, hey, I'm in the middle of it too. I'm right there with you. But let's go and see what God might have for us. Would you come and just see what happens? You might be amazed. A huge percentage of people say yes at some point when someone invites them. Where are you this morning? Struggling? Don't even know why? We're going to find out together. But what I want you to do today is I want you to realize there's someone who came a long way, a long, long way for you today. And he humbles himself. And he gets on his knees in front of you. And he gets your hands in his. And he says, I see you, little boy. I see you. I see every part of you. I see all, even the orphaned part, the adaptive child that you try to hide that comes out when you're triggered. You don't even know what's going on sometimes, but you know that your emotions are out of whack. It's that little one that speaks those words that you never wanted to speak to those that you love. Does those things you never wanted to do. But I know why. And I'll show you. I see you, little girl. I see you. I see the walls that you've built up to protect yourself. I see the boundaries that you lost that you don't even, you didn't even know are supposed to be there. And I see the abusive men that also can see that and they have used you. And I love you just like you are, but I've got so much more for you. I've got so much for you. I've got so much for you. Rivers of living water are going to flood your soul. I, through my Holy Spirit, will come and live in you and through you and heal you. Do you believe this? Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. Would you just close your eyes with me? What do I want for you to do today? Just open up. This God who made you, he loves you. Maybe you grew up in a home with performance-based love and acceptance and you've been trying to work your head off for God or be good enough for God. You can't do it. He knows. 
maybe today you just say, okay, God. Okay. I'm here. I open myself to you. You do what only you can do. Lord, I ask that you would give us the courage to invite our world to you. We don't have to be eloquent. We just have to say, come and see. And when they meet you face to face, they too will know what we're discovering, that you are God and that you do love us and that you do know us and that you know why we do the things we do and you want to show us and teach us and grow us and make us into all that you have dreamed of us being. So we say, come, kingdom of God, upon us. Be done, will of God, over us. And let nothing stop what you have in mind for us, for this church, for this community, for this nation. You are God. And you are going to meet us right where we are. And you're going to love us into all that we can be. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.